Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Hello there, Al Murray here. Now, as one or two of you may know, I'm partial to a glass or two of an evening. Sometimes beer, quite often these days, wine. In fact, wine has appeared more than once in the pod, from stories of British soldiers discovering a hidden stash as they crossed the Rhine, to James and I trying a bottle of Ukrainian sweet wine bottled in 1939 and spirited away as the Germans approached in 1941. And now, as a listener to We Have Ways, you can enjoy a free case of wine, courtesy of our good friends at Wine52. All you need to do is go to wine52.com slash ways and cover the postage costs of £9.95 and you'll get three bottles delivered to your door. I absolutely love trying wines from different countries and Wine52 showcases revered regions like Bordeaux and Emilia-Romagna, but also exceptional wines from countries like Georgia and Bulgaria. This fantastic wine club takes you on an incredible odyssey through the world of wine. You can have the choice of mixed, red-only or white-only cases and you also get Glug magazine, which delves into each region's wine culture, plus two tasty snacks. Your welcome case will include the beautiful Meridiano by Compagnia Mediterranea del Vino, a complex red with notes of blackberry, cherry and plum jam on the nose, and a lovely white wine called Lucasia by Agrestivini, a light and crisp wine with fresh notes of gooseberry, honeysuckle and jasmine. After your free case, you'll join the monthly wine club. No minimum commitment. If it's not for you, pause or cancel at any time. So remember, that's wine52.com slash ways to claim your free case of wine today. Enjoy. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Between the Lines, the podcast that deciphers the handwriting, unfolds faded pages and dips into the details of diaries, logbooks and letters written during this same week, there or thereabouts, in 1943, some 80 years ago. Let's start with a quick recap of the situation. It's only natural. Our focus now is on the Mediterranean. The Allied invasion of Sicily is underway. Operation Husky. This combined operation was entirely logical, as it secured access to the Italian mainland with the benefit of essential air cover by fighters operating from Malta. The operation brought the 7th US Army and the British 8th Army together, not forgetting our Canadian cousins, of course, as well as all the other Dominion troops involved in this action. And altogether, this meant organising some 180,000 men on more than 2,500 ships, the largest seaborne assault to date. Ahead of them were some 40,000 German troops and 230,000 Italians, although it must be said not all of them were sure whose side they were on. Elsewhere in the world, 
The Japanese have just gained a tactical victory off the coast of Kolombagara, and the battle for Mount Tambu has begun in New Guinea. It's incredible to think about the amount of administration that must have gone into resourcing supply lines for all of these actions, all taking place in different theatres, all at the same time. We'll start by catching up with Major General Oscar Griswold out in the South Pacific. He's under intense pressure this week. It looks as though he's about to handle even more of the logistical burden of command. Medical services must be improved and the entire supply system needs to be overhauled as a large number of reinforcements from the 25th and the 37th Divisions have to be received, accounted for and assigned to duties. Here's Oscar. 11th July 1943. Routine. A fuss between General Hardin and Admiral Turner about my taking over the NGOF. Turner wants Hester to take it with my staff. Harmon feels the operation is getting bigger and that he wants it under core direction and not division. Don't know how it'll turn out. 8 a.m. Left Henderson Field, Guadalcanal. Arrived Rendova Harbor at 9.30 a.m. Advance party. Arnold C-5, Riddings G-3, Leary G-4, Tracy G-2, Jack Blocker acting G-1, Ralph O'Ginn as ADC, orders to observe with probability of taking over the logistical burden from Hester, camped with General Hester at HQ, New Georgia Occupation Force at Rendova. 12th July, 1943. Spent day in New Georgia, landed Zanana Beach, Spent most of day at Divisional HQ. The battle was going on up the Munda Trail near Baroika River. Many wounded coming back. Heavy losses. Men look all tired out. Bewildered look of horror on many faces. Troops impress me as not having been mentally prepared or well-trained. Impress me as not doing job very effectively. Enemy resistance, however, is very stiff. 1720 and 169th Infantry doing the fighting. 13th July, 1943. Remained in command post all day. Observed how staff was handling the operation. Was not impressed. Lots of loose ends. Reported to Harmon as observer on way things are going. Recommended reinforcement from 25th Division. In my opinion, disaster in this operation is a possibility unless something is done. 14th July, 1943. Ordered by General Harmon to report estimated time I could be in readiness to assume command of NGOF. Directed to submit plan by radio in case I was assigned to command. Rear echelon of 14 Corps arrived from Guadalcanal. Set up our own headquarters and an area of our own. Mud simply terrific. Everything carried by hand. We're being bombed every night, sometimes during the day by dive bombers who go after our shipping. 15th July, 1943. Assume command of NGOF by direction of ComSOPAC as of midnight July 15th, 16th. Entire line of communications heavily attacked by enemy during night from Zanana Beachhead. Some wounded were bayoneted and clubbed to death at medical station. Loss is heavy. Morale is low in 434 Division. Attack stopped and line of communications cut. It looks bad. Frontline battalions of 169th surrounded and cut off. Night attacks of enemy mostly repulsed. 16th July, 1943. Hester ordered to take personal command of 43rd Division and to join it on NG. To have command of all troops on NG mainland. 
172nd Infantry ordered to sideslip to south and secure beachhead near Liana. Did so. 145th Infantry ordered to land at Zanana and advance up to clear line of communications and establish contact with 169th Infantry. Right, back to where the action is. We'll head out to the Mediterranean. From the bridge of HMS Warspite, Captain Bertie Packer is looking up into a night sky that's just blooming with the hint of what's taking place just over the horizon. The Warspite is heading towards the southeastern side of Sicily, and the men are clearly keen to see some action. Saturday the 10th of July. As I write, it is 02.45, zero hour for the landings. I've just come down off the bridge, aircraft flying around us in the dark. Wind is fresh from the northwest, clear night blowing very hard. Moon set two hours ago. We are 90 miles from the shore. Flashes on the port bow and ahead like bombs or guns. This is all in the direction of the southeastern point of Sicily. At 12.43, what looked like a bouquet of star shell or aircraft flares hung in the sky. The sailors on deck are all peering ahead and talking, if at all, in undertones. There is awe around. The beaches will not be a pretty sight. No attacks on us all night. At daybreak we are about 40 miles off Cape Passaro. As the day goes on, we back and fill off the coast with continuous air alarms, but no attacks. Things are going well, and by evening three aerodromes are ours, Pacino, Licata and Geller. During the night, the usual alarms, and at daybreak we sighted Mount Etna. The sailors, having been really keyed up for each hour and a battle, are getting very disappointed. Monday the 12th of July. Division anchored off Malta. During the night there was a never-ending booming and banging and shell bursts from Sicily, and as I write we are off the east coast of Sicily and the booming and banging never ceases. Tuesday the 13th of July. Echo and Ilex were detached to hunt a submarine and got him at 0700 this morning with 23 prisoners. Port Augusta is now ours. The coast defence guns were not manned. Now for Catania. If we don't get it, it will be infuriatingly disappointing. Wednesday and Thursday, 14th and 15th of July. Backing and filling east of Cape Pissarro. The Italian fleet won't come out. The Italian Air Force have left us severely alone. A lot of enemy submarines about and we have been in contact with two, both dived and got away. We must be fighting hard on the outskirts of Catania. We shall be on this job until our supply routes and ports are guarded by fully established air forces. Until we have Messina, there is little chance of the enemy capitulating. Friday evening, 16th of July. Malta. A bright full moon all night which is grand for lovers but not so hot for big ships when torpedo bombers are about. About 1700 yesterday a German snooper reported us from 20,000 feet as we steamed west. This was intercepted by our Y-chaps. Shortly afterwards we turned and steamed east. We all agreed we had undoubtedly foxed the enemy, and when an attack came we should be 100 to 150 miles away. But it was clear that Rodney, Nelson, Indomitable and the destroyer screen from Malta would be in the danger area that night. They were warned accordingly. After arrival in harbour I called on the great Andrew Cunningham. 
The gist of my remarks was that since he had left Warspite, she had not fired around at the enemy, and that we were raving to do so. Well, said he, I can't tie the Italian fleet down. No, said I, but Sicily is the biggest island in Europe, and immovable, and I'm sure we could hit it. I doubt it, said he. In peacetime, Warspite was always the worst gunnery ship in the Med. And wartime, I pressed the point. She never missed, said he. Also saw Bertie Ramsey, the retired admiral responsible for the Dunkirk evacuation. He's been in charge of all naval arrangements for the Sicily invasion. I asked him what he thought of Montgomery of the Eighth Army. He said the great thing about Monty is that he wins battles, and what the hell does it matter if we don't like this or don't like that about him? He's a general who wins battles, and by God they are rare enough. And what's more, he wins them with a minimum of casualties, and his soldiers know it. Monty, he said, is also very naughty. When he went to England the other day, every night he rang up some show to say he was coming and wanted a box, and he would get it, and the manager would advertise it, and he would appear and bow and so on to an immense ovation, all in his black beret. In short, I gather that Monty is a hell of a general, and very little lovable. We'll check in briefly with RMS Jack Ward next with the 56 Heavy Regiment. As always, being a seasoned old soldier, Jack is a source of wry and rather dry humour about the progress being made now, or lack of it, and the general situation. 10th of July. I'm listening to the news of our invasion of Sicily and that we've taken three aerodromes. Back in camp, glad to get back, far too hot there. Received number 36 air letter today. Also received news last night that General Montgomery is our new commander. What our new army's called, nobody knows yet. More in about six weeks, probably. 11th of July. Wrote a lot of mail last night. Air letters to Mum and a letter for Michael. Also one to the 114th Field Company. And another one to Uncle Brent and Sophie. Very hot today. Oh, proper stinking. News good tonight and well into Sicily. Wonder when we move. Captain Lucy, the Canadian attached officer, has left us. And we're going to supper tomorrow night at a place called Via Ruda. Instructed by the commanding officer and officers. Should be good. 14th of July. Went to supper last night and what a do. My oh my. Chicken eating and a lot of liquid refreshment. <laughs> Finished after several hours. Very hot again. I've been to number one prison camp today. They had their camp burnt down to the ground last week. Jerry Patrol sent them up in smoke. Set off bombs. Whew. Lucky for them they all got the prisoners away. 15th of July. Hot again. Started in drill bottoms, no sign of moving yet. Our troops doing well in Sicily now. Soon be in Italy by the sound of the news. 3,000 boats of all types are taking part. What a do. <sighs> no mail today, but a batch of papers last night. We need to take a quick break. We'll be back with more from Between the Lines in just a moment.
Moving east now to Syria, Corporal Harry Wilson of Three Corps Signals is getting to grips with his recent promotion. Sunday 11th, I was orderly corporal today. I gave my first orders in the army. My duties were 1. Wake everybody up at Ravelli. 2. Ensure all personnel except senior NCOs were at the cookhouse at mealtimes. 3. Escort the sick to the MI room. and 4. Blow a whistle for lights out. My first taste of power both amazed and embarrassed me. But when 50 men came to instant attention at my word of command and obeyed my every instruction without hesitation, I felt strange and inspired, like Moses. There was something unnatural about it and something mysteriously frightening. Thursday 15th, the psychological turmoil has subsided somewhat. Signals came to test the radios in the wireless trucks. We moved up country. I was in the Homs detachment. Homs is in Syria, about 75 miles north of Abla. Three detachments in all, all quite a distance from one another and separated by mountains. Our spare man produced a petrol cooker and brewed tea. After a meal, we established proper contact with control using dummy cipher messages. And then I was woken up at midnight to decipher a signal instructing us to move at 2am for Nerek on the Damascus Road. Why the hell move at 2am? Friday 16th, we arrived at Nerek at 5.30am. The morning air was keen and I felt well, but towards noon it grew hot. Got a message from control telling us to return to Abla. I can tell you we did this at speed, stopping only in Damascus for a feed at a wayside orchard. In Italy, Colonel Dr Wilhelm Maus is getting a real sense of the to and fro of the Battle for Sicily. Just listen to how he's making notes about the Hermann Goering division losing its officers and much of the southwest half of Sicily. Interestingly, he also assumes it is American paratroopers landing to the south of Catania, in fact, it was men from the British 1st Airborne Division. This is Operation Fustian, the British airborne operation to try and swiftly capture the key Primasoli Bridge. Unfortunately for the British, German paratroopers from the 1st Fallschirmjäger Division dropped at the same place pretty much at the same time. A very bitter battle for that vital bridge followed. In fact, it's fair to say that Allied airborne operations on Sicily as a whole hardly went according to plan. 11th July 1943 Nothing specific about the fight in Sicily is known yet. The English have landed in the areas of Augusta, Siraguste and Gela. It is said about seven divisions as well as patroopers. German and Italian countermeasures are gone in progress. Numerous British aircraft are shot down. Ships have been sunk or damaged. For the time being, it is enormous that such actions. It all feels completely chaotic and gradually the situation will clear. The 26th Panzer Division will come to us and occupy the area south of Napoli. 12 July 1942. Three English divisions have landed near Syracuse. German and Italian counterattacks are in progress, which are already 8 kilometers forward of Syracuse. Further enemy advance stopped in this area as well. Near Gela, there are four to five American divisions across a broad front. They have been pushed partially back here as well. Near Comiso, paratroopers came down, still fighting. A landing attempt at the most western part of the island has prevented because of a sudden change in weather. Wind force 11 and high waves. 
Enemy warships fired against Trapanian villages south of it this morning, but the enemy's air force was not being deployed well, so everything looks rather positive. Let's hope it will. 13th July 1943. Not such good news. Further advances towards Syracuse and Gela failed. We have to evade due to enemy superiority. The Italians have not been very successful. According to this morning's report, almost the entire southeastern corner of Sicily is in Anglo-American hands. Altogether, a rather dark picture. General Hubo is discussing if it would be right for the corps to cross over to Sicily, but that might be a useless sacrifice. The decision about this lies with the Führer Adolf Hitler. We just carry out his orders. We discuss the meaning of this war until deep in the night. 14th July 1943. The defensive battle is still very heavy, in the proximity of Augusta especially where the English hope to capture Catania. Two American patrooper battalions who parachuted down in the Catania area are however close to being annihilated. 16th July 1943. We decamped from Casino yesterday morning, heading to Napoli. We arrived at the Kriegslazarett in Granalberto, just as the first hospital ship from Messina arrived. About 100 Germans are on board. Many are members of the Hermann Göring division, but most of them are wounded near Gela, on the southern coast of Sicily. Again, I discussed the evacuation on the island. I am to get Wehrmacht authorizations for the entire island of Sicily. Nothing new is known about the situation. Apparently, the western part of the island is to be given up and a defensive rump formed around the Mount Etna and the Straits of Messina. General Hube and Orbis Tunis have been already flown in this morning. The American paratroopers that landed near Catania have been destroyed. Our new attacks carry on. Very high devastation on the landing fleet. One counts a loss of 500,000 tons of enemy shipping. We leave at 5 a.m. Apparently, we are to cross Sicily today. Time to head home now, to Edinburgh, to catch up with all the latest news from the Blythes. We'll hear from Mar Blythe first, that's Julia, and then from her son, David, still out in Canada, Flight Lieutenant Blythe. It seems as though some of David's correspondence is coming in for more scrutiny by the censors. A hint, perhaps, that practical training is picking up the pace now that he's fully qualified as a navigator. Julia first. 15th of July. Dear David, Thank you for your aircraft of the 28th telling me of your safe arrival. Naturally, you'll be more comfortable as a pilot officer and as for a Batman, well, I think you would better bring him home with you. You deserve all your promotion, David, as you've always given your best in everything you've done. I know this success won't change your nature. Everyone who knows you has a good word to say on your behalf. Joan met a boy at the Palais the other evening who asked after you, and when she told him you were now a pilot officer, he just said, David's a good lad and deserves it. I received the photos from Aunt Jean yesterday. They are good, and I believe you look a little bit stouter in the body. We took special note of the kid gloves, David. Frank looks nice. Thanks for all the information about the allotment. I will let you know how it all works out. David, be sure and live within your income, as you have no private revenue over there, and I know you like everything of the best. Go easy at first and see how you fare. Gran will persist in saving the cigarettes for you. 
As she says, they will be handy if you walk in sometime. But of course, June pays her a visit now and again when funds are too low to purchase, and so the stack soon goes down. Ian is still in Manchester. No future in his present job, and I think he's felt fed up. Well, Dad's holidays are over, and he has had a good rest. I hope you will like Charlottetown, David, and... By the way, I'll remind you of the RAF brooch you promised me when you come home to Bonnie, Scotland. I also know someone who will envy you your pilot officer's greatcoat. That's Dad, by the way. Will you still be able to play swing on the piano now, or must it all be classical? I look forward to hearing all your news. Love from all here, and good luck, Ma. 15th July. Dear Ma, I have quite a few more expenses now, so I'm afraid I can't allot quite the same amount to you as I have been doing previously. The RAF gives us a grant for uniform, but I'm afraid that doesn't cover it. However, you can rest assured I have enough to live on comfortably, but at the moment I'm not sure how it's all going to work out. I'll be better off here financially than I will be when I get home, but that's another thing. Can't even be certain when that will be yet. Sorry to be so indefinite about all this, Ma, but I'll try and give you some more details when things are straightened out. In any case, you can let me know how things are. I'm also sorry I can't give you any information on the course itself. But you know, we have to obey security regulations for the good of all. Thank you very much for these saving certificates you bought me recently. I appreciate it very much. Please give my best regards to all my friends at home. It's great to have to hear about you all. Someday I'll walk in and surprise you. Love to all, David. Now then, we're going to finish this week with a diary entry that's a little bit longer than usual. If you recall, Captain Chester Hansen, Chet, is the aide to General Omar Bradley. We haven't heard from Chet for a while, but he's about to make up for it with a wonderfully detailed description of the advance on Sicily. He typed up all his handwritten notes after the event, but they're as close to verbatim as they can be, really, so we get a real sense of him in the thick of it, pencil and notebook in hand, documenting what's about to happen. I'm not going to spoil it all, so here's Chet. July 10th. For five days we sailed unmolested with only occasional submarine alerts. A heavy sea, though, and General Bradley was compelled to lie in bed. He became quite ill in the pitching sea. Hard for us to imagine the boats could be launched in this weather. Rising. I can just make out the coastline 15,000 yards off. Huge fires visible. We are just off Skogliti, and the airplane beacon light is still swinging wildly about. No fire from the shore. Have they discovered us? They must have. But why no fire? What was on the beach? When would the assault wave hit it? Apprehension now. Much of it. But still the battle is detached. A million miles away. Hours pass. Everything proceeding to plan. The fires started by our bombers are dimming and H-hour is approaching. Two flashes of fire. A sheet of flame and two tracers racing to the shore. A loud thud and an explosion. Flame on the shore... The destroyers are racing in, firing their guns broadside at the beach defenses. Here it is. H-hour has come. 
Destroyers are escorting the assault wave into the beach. Suddenly the searchlight to the west comes on again. The Navy floods it with 20mm fire, and the light goes out, but only after probing over the convoy, silhouetting the ships in its ghostly white light. We suddenly feel naked and denuded. They found us. Now for the shore fire. Now for those railroad guns. But there is no answer from shore. Fire's increasing now in intensity. The shore is a morass of exploding shells, far out to the sea. Cruisers and heavy gunboats with special armaments have joined the barrage. You can see the flash of fire from a broadside, see the projectiles flame their fiery arc through the sky. Follow them lazily until they pick up momentum in their wild dive for the shore, and then the blinding flash. And many seconds later, the sound of the concussion. Difficult to see the shore firing. Certainly our troops are now ashore. We wonder what they've found, and still feel unreal standing so safely on the deck of this ship. Are the beaches defended? Has the last enemy retreated before our landing? Still the indistinct chug of the landing boats. A terrible explosion up by Gela, and moments later a huge crumph. Wondered what it was. Not a tanker or ammunition ship, we hope. Frequent reports now to the general, but the battle is beyond control. There is little he can do until troops establish contact with our ships. Time passes quickly, and soon there is the first light of day uncovering the rugged coastline of Sicily. More cannonading. All the ships at sea seem to be belching fire. This is our first view as the mist lifts. Through glasses we can very plainly see Gela and Scogliti, and the unloading of men and equipment from the boats on the beach. This is the pattern of invasion. No radio silence now. News of successful landings by our combat teams. Messages trickle in and soon the flood begins. The picture's clearing. We have more than 100 messages, and the radio room is crackling wildly. Still, no enemy air, and we're mystified that he hasn't come. Resistance on beach is slight, except at Gela, where rangers ran into heavy resistance and subsequently knocked it out. Troops pushing on to their first objectives, and then to secure the airfields. These are important. Suddenly the sky is spotted with anti-aircraft fire. Two Messerschmitts jump the tail of the cruiser's plane and follow it to the ground as it crashes. Seems ridiculous. We slip to the wardroom for a buffet breakfast of eggs in huge silver casseroles with steaming hot coffee. We're anxious to get ashore, but we can't do so until communications are established. General Middleton goes over in a boat before eight and heads off for the shore to command his troops. A heroic-looking fellow sitting on the hood of his jeep in the landing boat. Situation's still a trifle cloudy, but appears to be going well. Our ship moves closer inshore. Sea is now alive with landing craft. Heavy groundswell causes our craft to bob about with much spray inside. No fire on shore now except for occasional enemy artillery. Shoreline is piling up with equipment. The landing boat's abandoned in the assault. Loads of ammunition, rations, medical supplies, hundreds of stretchers and bedding rolls, insulators, tools, water cans, gasoline cans, and the remnants of life-discarded preservers. Thousands of men on the beaches straining to clear the stuff and get it into the thick reeds in the dunes. 
the extensive and incredible supply problem gets to work. Engineers hurry to get matting wire laid on the sandy beaches. A quick trip ashore for me, and then a report to the old man. He'll follow me over tomorrow. Back in the boat, and head up towards the command post, selected while we were still in Africa. We pass abandoned shore defense positions, trenches and pillboxes and the like. Signs of intense artillery, too. Soldiers are digging trenches. They appear calm, but a few are anxious to get out and get the devils who are shooting them. Wounded pouring back now. Mostly artillery fire wounds, and, and they're painful. Much machine gun fire now, and artillery continues. Bed down in the car under a tree until daylight to prevent our running into the enemy lines while careening about the country this way. Nothing to eat since noon, save on D-ration. That's all for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. We do hope you found a little insight and were briefly entertained as we were reading. Between the Lines. Between the Lines is a We Have Ways production. Julia Mar Blythe is read by Ruth Sillers. David Blythe is read by Matthew Malthouse. Oscar Griswold is read by Michael Lyons. Chester Hansen is read by Lance Fuller. Veer Hodgson is read by Rachel Holland. Heinz Knocker is read by Lucas Veschler. Bertie Packer is read by Paul Waggett. Jack Ward is read by Adam Jarrell. Harry Wilson is read by Joel Emery. Narration is by James Holland and Al Murray. Editing by John Gill and Joey McCarthy. Written and produced by Merrin Walters. The executive producer is Tony Pastor. Hello there, Al Murray here. Now, as one or two of you may know, I'm partial to a glass or two of an evening. Sometimes beer, quite often these days, wine. In fact, wine has appeared more than once in the pod, from stories of British soldiers discovering a hidden stash as they crossed the Rhine, to James and I trying a bottle of Ukrainian sweet wine bottled in 1939 and spirited away as the Germans approached in 1941. And now, as a listener to We Have Ways, you can enjoy a free case of wine, courtesy of our good friends at Wine52. All you need to do is go to wine52.com slash ways and cover the postage costs of £9.95 and you'll get three bottles delivered to your door. I absolutely love trying wines from different countries and Wine52 showcases revered regions like Bordeaux and Emilia-Romagna, but also exceptional wines from countries like Georgia and Bulgaria. This fantastic wine club takes you on an incredible odyssey through the world of wine. You can have the choice of mixed, red-only or white-only cases and you also get Glug magazine, which delves into each region's wine culture, plus two tasty snacks. Your welcome case will include the beautiful Meridiano by Compagnia Mediterranea del Vino, a complex red with notes of blackberry, cherry and plum jam on the nose, and a lovely white wine called Lucasia by Agresti Vini, a light and crisp wine with fresh notes of gooseberry, 
Honeysuckle and Jasmine. After your free case, you'll join the monthly wine club. No minimum commitment. If it's not for you, pause or cancel at any time. So remember, that's wine52.com slash ways to claim your free case of wine today. Enjoy.